0: And that's what we're looking at for the rest of the summer. And we started this series last week. Uh, and if you weren't here, I encourage you uh, go back to our website or the church app and and listen to that message. It was kind of an, an introductory message to this to this series. And this week is kind of part two of an introduction, so to speak. Uh, that'll kind of set us on the right trajectory for for understanding the whole book and and trying to grab a hold of an ungraspable book in a lot of ways, Um, because like that central metaphor Hevel, the book of Ecclesiastes can feel that way sometimes, that it's hard to get a hold of and hard to make sense of. But we're going to do our best uh, through the rest of the summer. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we open God's word this morning? Gracious God, we honor you and we thank you. For this day, for it's a day that you have made. And so together we rejoice and are glad in it. And we're grateful for this church community that we can gather together and, um, and worship you. And remind one another again of who you are and all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And as we live in a world that sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense that can be confusing and challenging, or we know that you are present with us and that you walk with us as we go through life and you call us to, to faithfully represent you in this world. And we're grateful for the words of Ecclesiastes, a unique book with a unique message, but words that we need to hear And so we ask, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us and challenge us. And Lord, help us to hear your voice this morning. It's in your precious and holy name that we do pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, maybe, well, 13 years ago, to be exact, Uh, My wife, Meryl, and I were first married, and we traveled to St. Lucia on our honeymoon. And the day of travel to get there was exhausting. After a long flight, uh, we took a a shuttle from the south side of the island to the northwest side of the island. And I kid you not, I don't think we drove over a single recently paved road. Um, By recently paved, I mean like the last 20, 30 years. I mean, it was a bumpy ride with a lot of twists and turns, and after a long day of travel, we were starving for something good to eat. That airport sandwich or whatever we had beforehand just wasn't doing it for us, and we were starving. We sat down at our first meal, and uh, we found out later that actually the the chef there uh, often would travel the Caribbean and, and, and cook for the upper echelon of Caribbean society, and so he was our chef, and we sat down for a steak dinner with all the trimmings. And I, without exaggeration, I will say it was the best steak I have ever had in my life. And ever since then, I've been trying to, I think I've spent good money to try to find a steak that was at least close to being that good, and I haven't been able to do it. Um, It just melted in your mouth. It was so tender and juicy and just wonderful. The steak made me question why anyone would ever want to be a vegetarian. I mean, if God didn't want us to eat beef, then why would he make it taste so good? Um, Do you ever have moments like that in your life when you think to yourself, man, this, this is the way food should taste? Or you take a sip of that madcap coffee and you're like, man, this is what coffee should taste like. Or you have a day with your kids where there was no fighting, and well, those never happen, but those times of just elation and joy, and you think this is how life should be. Of course you do. Moments of of sheer joy and elation, Uh, maybe it's a place that you visit, or a favorite family activity that you do together, um, or a special moment that you've shared with a loved one. And do you know what those moments really are? They're little glimpses of the way the world ought to be, and one day will be when Jesus returns and makes things new again. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he recognizes this, and in our world that's full of uncertainty and that's often unpredictable, like we talked about last week, the preacher calls us to celebrate these little moments of life as gifts of God. Last week we looked at the central metaphor in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the video we just watched uh, walked us through that a little bit too, and it's this Hebrew word hevel, and it's often translated meaningless or vanity in our English Bibles, but the word is actually an image, and it's better translated as smoke or vapor or breath. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes says that life is like that sometimes, that like a puff of smoke, it's here today, but then it's gone in an instant. But even more than that, the primary way he uses it is, you know, you try to grab a puff of of smoke and you can't quite get a hold of it. It's ungraspable, it's unpredictable, even enigmatic at times. Uh, We can all testify to this claim by pointing to events in our own lives, the everyday moments of futility and frustration we feel at work when things just don't go the way we think they should go, or when we're parenting our kids and trying to get them to, to behave and to do what we want them to do, and you can't quite grab a hold of that or control that. And then, of course, there's the bigger moments, the tragedies of life that force us to ask, why? Why did this happen to me? And the preacher takes a pretty dim view of our ability to control life or even understand its meaning. It's, that's not really something we expect to read in our Bibles, is it? Uh, But there's a handful of passages where the preacher says that embracing that life is hevel is a strange gift, a gift that can enrich your life rather than diminish it. So we'll be looking at a number of passages this morning rather than focusing on just one like I often do. Uh, Because we want to trace a theme that runs throughout the entire book. And as we do, we'll get a sense for this tension that the preacher feels as he walks through life. Uh, This conflict that the preacher feels threatens to tear him apart as the book moves along. So let's dive in. Go ahead and uh, turn, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the first 11 verses of this chapter where the, the preacher tests pleasure, and he's like a weekend warrior with a lot of resources at his disposal, but he finds that Monday always comes. And so ultimately, he finds that pleasure is Hevel. And then he looks at wisdom and folly, and he finds that whether you're wise or foolish, everyone dies, and that's Hevel. And then he considers the theme of work, now, verse 20 of chapter 2, he says this So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all that they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is heaven and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All the, their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night their minds do not rest. This too is Hevel. We'll look at the theme of work in a few weeks to see what else he has to say, but here... He says, he wonders, what's the point of work if at the end of the day you have to leave all the fruits of your labor to someone else, some fool who may squander it away? So what's the point in that? Well, then he says this in verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So, which one is it? Is life hevel? Is it enigmatic? Does it not always make sense? Or is it a gift from God? Is work a grievous evil? Or is it a gift from God? Which one is it? They seem almost contradictory to one another, don't they? Let's look at the next one, chapter 3. In verse 11, the preacher talks about how everything is made beautiful in its time, and that God has written eternity on the hearts of every human being. So if that's the case, if we have eternity written on our hearts, then then life should have great meaning, shouldn't it? But then he says that... um, While eternity is written on our hearts and it should have great meaning, none of us can understand it. None of us can grab a hold of it. So how frustrating is that? So what's his response then? Verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Well, then later in the chapter, he talks about death as the great equalizer. And he observes that human beings and animals face the same fate under the sun. And that's Hevel. But how does he respond? Verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? You're seeing a pattern a little bit. You're starting to feel this tension that the preacher feels of a life that is heavy, of enigmatic, but also that it's a gift. Next one, uh, chapter 5. In verses 8 to 15, the preacher discusses how the one with money never has enough, and he talks about the misuse of money, whether one has a lot of it or not much at all. And then verse 16 of chapter 5, he says, As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Well, that's one way to live your life, eating in darkness, frustration, or anger. Or, verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in all their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Well, those are two radically different ways of approaching life under the sun, and he feels the two in tension. The preacher acknowledges here that life is brief. But the question is, will you be occupied by the darkness and frustration and anger, the hell? Or will you be occupied with gladness of heart, of eating and drinking with joy before the face of God? Turn to chapter 8. I told you we're looking at a lot of passages this morning. Chapter 8. We looked briefly at this last week. Uh, verse 14. He says, there's something else, Hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is Hevel. How many acts of injustice do we see in our news feeds every week? The righteous getting what the wicked deserve, and the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. Where justice is turned upside down. And this gets a double Hevel from the preacher. He's outraged by this. But then how does he respond? Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So how can the preacher commend joy when the righteous are being treated as if wicked, and the wicked as if they're righteous. There's this ever-widening gap that I think is being formed uh, between what the preacher knows to be true from, his, from living his life as an Israelite, from following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God of love and justice. So there's this ever-widening gap between what he knows to be true about God and about life on the one hand, but then what he observes in his life on the other hand. Do you see that? Do you f- feel a little bit of this tension that he's experiencing? Last one in chapter 9, and verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. And as it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. What does he seem to say here? The righteous and the wicked, whether you're good or bad, we're all going to die. So what should we do then? Uh, verse 7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. It says we're all going to die, so enjoy a good meal with gladness. God takes special pleasure when we enjoy the goodness of life. God wants us to enjoy his basic provisions for us. And verse 8, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. He says, you know what? Don't dress like you're attending a funeral. And you know what? For goodness sakes, put some product in your hair. You know, look, look presentable. <laughs> verse 9, he says, enjoy life with your spouse and whom you love. Now all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. This, these couple verses here are one of the few times where hevel means temporary. He says, Life is short, so enjoy the one whom you're married to. Enjoy the work that God has given you to do. And so we find this tension throughout the book this tension between a life that is hevel, that's ungraspable, unpredictable, enigmatic, and yet we're supposed to enjoy life as a gift. And the preacher goes back and forth, back and forth throughout the book. And this tension builds as the book progresses. And these seeming contradictions between the preacher's beliefs about God and what he experiences in life threaten to tear him apart. What I think the preacher is getting at here is this. That understanding that life is heaven actually frees us to receive life in all of its great moments as a gift from God. I'll say that again, that understanding that life is Hevel actually frees us to receive life in all of its great moments as a gift from God. When we come to terms with the fact that life is Hevel, that it's fragile and fleeting and sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Then we can be present and enjoy life and receive life as a gift. You know, we all have ideas about how life ought to go, the path our lives should take. Some of us are big planners and we've mapped out a career trajectory, personal life goals, retirement plans, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. But if we hold on to these plans too tightly, we set ourselves up for great disappointment. Because the events happen in life that we can't control. The most serious, unexpected events and, and often include phrases like cancer, car accident, the doctors did everything they could, or you're fired. But even less tragic events can mess with our perception of how life ought to go. We don't get into our first college choice. Uh, we didn't get the promotion we expected to get a career transition didn't go the way that I planned it to. And we may see these events as obstacles in our life and obstacles in the way of happiness, but the preacher's telling us that any one of these obstacles could end up having a great positive effect. These events or obstacles in life could strip you of the illusion that you are actually in control of your life and that you can make of your life what you want to make of it. And he says the sooner we can be stripped of that illusion, the better. And we might become so focused on big plans and career trajectories that we miss the little moments in life that make life worth living, like a drink with friends or a good meal. Or we might become so focused on our five-year plans that when life happens and messes up those plans, we are left angry and disappointed and bitter at God. For not blessing the plans that I've set for myself. We looked at this a bit last week. In subtle ways, we may believe that God's job is to bless me and make me happy. And we may believe that we're the center of the universe rather than God. We may not say that, but we may act or live like that. And so our expectations for how life ought to go are more aligned with this myth of religious self-fulfillment that we looked at last week rather than the gospel. We usually see failures and disappointments as obstacles in our way to joy and fulfillment. And the preacher turns that on its head and he says that life's failures and disappointments are the key to embracing a life of true joy here under the sun. If they help us to be present and to enjoy our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who've been through challenging circumstances, who tell me how close they've grown to God as a result. I had coffee, coffee recently with my friend Bill. I met Bill when his father Bob was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I got to know Bill quite a bit over the, the next year or so and through visiting Bob in the hospital or at home. And one day, I received news that Bill's daughter was in a tragic car accident. You want to hear something Hevel? Bob, who lived a good long life well into his 80s, who knew his days were short as he was dying of cancer, you know, he was on hospice, he attended the funeral of his 26-year-old granddaughter before he died. And over the course of four months, my friend Bill buried his daughter and both of his parents. Uh, he's been through a lot of health challenges in the years since then. Along with this, the ongoing grief, especially the grief of losing a daughter, a grief that no one ever gets over. But Bill surprised me. He said, you know what, I would give anything if I could see my daughter again for even five minutes. But I would never want to give up how I'm experiencing the presence of God right now As a result of what I've been through, God has been more real to me than he ever has in these past couple of years. You know, our ability to enjoy the simple pleasures of life is directly tied to our ability to see that we have no control over our lives. And some of you are saying that makes absolutely no sense. And that could be a sign that maybe you're still working under this illusion that you have control over your life. But some of you have had enough years or experiences that you know that life will not always turn out the way that you planned it, even when you have the noblest of intentions. And the preacher says, live your life, enjoy it, and release the outcomes to God. I mean, think about all of the activities of our lives that we try to control, and yet they keep us from enjoying life. As a parent of young kids, this is probably the biggest way this message has hit home for me as I've prepared it. Uh, It's been been a tough road recently. It's been difficult um, having two young kids and all of the energy and joy that they bring uh, but it can be challenging sometimes. Uh, a few weeks ago, or actually I think it was last week actually, I, I tried to sleep in because I returned, on, uh, returned home on a late flight uh, and there is really no sleeping in in our house. Um, but this particular morning I couldn't sleep in because Red Spider-Man and Black Spider-Man were running around the house trying to climb the walls and save the day. Later that morning, I was enjoying a cup of coffee in the den when our house became silent. And you know that's absolute trouble when the house is silent. Um, Especially our youngest one, he he talks. And he goes to bed talking. He talks himself to sleep and he wakes up talking. And every moment in between, he's talking. So I'm enjoying my cup of coffee. And it gets silent, and black Spider-Man's in front of me. Jeremiah, our oldest, was in the den, but red Spider-Man was nowhere to be found. When, when Caleb is silent, it's trouble. So I ask Jeremiah, where is Caleb? And he says very nonchalantly, oh, he's in the kitchen putting glue on his hands and feet so he can climb the walls like Spider-Man. I, I almost spilled my coffee getting out of my chair and running. No! I think I, I scared Caleb in that moment. And then he starts running with sticky feet and all, oh, sticky feet, running through the kitchen trying to get away from me. And I grabbed him before he could get too far. You know, so often, I want to control the actions of my kids. Sometimes it's misbehaviors that I want to clean up. Sometimes I want to correct them for their safety and well-being. But other times I just want my kids to live their lives the way I think they should live their lives. But if I spend all my time trying to control my kids or getting angry with them, what have I failed to do? I failed to simply enjoy being with them and spending time with them, and appreciating the special gifts that they are to me and my wife. It took me a couple of minutes into cleaning up my son and the floors before I could genuinely laugh about it. Um, You know, joy, joy never seems to come when we try to control or work for it. And oftentimes it comes to us in these simple pleasures of life like enjoying time with our families, laughing with our kids, eating, drinking, working hard. But that still leaves us with a question, how do we live in this tension that the preacher experiences, that all of us experience? How do we live in the tension between what God intends for life and our often painful experiences of it? And this question's at the heart of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, so we'll be seeking to answer it over the next several weeks. But as I thought about how to begin answering it this morning, I thought of several people I know right now who are suffering levels of pain that I can't really fathom. Uh, some attend this church, others don't. But each of them is overwhelmed with the hevel of life right now. And it can be hard to see those little glimpses of heaven that I talked about. And maybe you can relate. Maybe for you it's an overwhelming sense of grief over the loss of a loved one or several loved ones. You know, At Nancy's funeral, I I said to someone, you know what, we've lost a lot of saints lately in this church for the last six months or so. Six or nine months or so. And that grief can be overwhelming when it's Boy, when it's, uh, when it's a lot of your close friends or family. Maybe for you, it's a sense of betrayal you feel from your spouse or a friend, and you wonder if this is going to end your relationship. Or perhaps it already has. Or maybe you're recovering from a long illness or from a serious injury, and you wonder when complete healing will come. You know, each of these scenarios is an experience of heaven the fleeting and fragile and unpredictable nature of life. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of it all. We see in Ecclesiastes that God wants to use these experiences in your life to draw you to himself so that you may have hope. You might have noticed that every passage that I read earlier involved eating and drinking. So why these images, you might ask? Well, two thoughts come to mind. The first, we eat and drink every day to make the relentless movement of time to stop and pause for a second. And we can pause with others. And we remember our smallness and our dependence upon others. Um, Every time we open our mouths to eat and drink, we acknowledge our dependence on another. I mean, do you produce all of the food that you eat? Neither does Wendy's or McDonald's, I assure you. Whenever we eat or drink, we acknowledge our frailty and dependence on forces outside of ourselves. But then secondly, remember that steak I mentioned earlier? I think a lot of you are going to have a steak for lunch probably after I mention that. Remember that steak? When I ate that incredible steak... What do you think I felt afterwards? Now, assuming I didn't eat too much, which I probably did, but what did I feel? Satisfaction. Excited, yes, definitely. But satisfaction. And that's an image of what the Bible calls shalom, of well-being, of life the way it ought to be in all of its goodness. But how long does that feeling of satisfaction last? few hours, maybe. I'll be hungry again not long after that. Because of that, eating and drinking are forward-pointing symbols. Every time we enjoy the simple pleasures of life like eating and drinking, they're reminders of God's precious gifts to us, but they're also sneak previews of the big show yet to come. These experiences are reminders to us that life's frustrations will not last forever. And all these little moments of joy in life, of eating and drinking and, and fruitful work, they're like a trail of little breadcrumbs that lead to the great wedding feast of the Lamb, when all things will be made new in the new heavens and the new earth. I love the words to the hymn that we're going to sing in a moment. And we'll close with this, that speak of the tension we feel in this world, and yet give us hope. I think it's the third verse. It says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. No matter how bad it gets, our God is still sovereign. He's a good and gracious God and we can trust him and he is still on his throne no matter what life looks like. And then it says this, this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Amen? You still feel that battle? And the tension between the two? It says, Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven will be won. So we're longing together for that to happen. In fact, almost Every verse of Ecclesiastes, it seems, shows us how much we need a Savior to make all things new. And our Savior Jesus entered the hevel of this life and suffered as you have suffered. He was betrayed as you were betrayed. And Jesus grieved as you now grieve. And he died on the cross and defeated sin once and for all through his resurrection. So that one day, All of the suffering and pain and heartache will end. And he's with us by his spirit so that in the hevel of our everyday lives, we are not alone. And therefore, we are not without hope. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we're grateful for your words to us this morning. And Lord, for some of us, it can be challenging to face the reality of life as it is. And so, Lord God, I I pray that in one sense you help us to to do that, to see life as it really is, but to live. And the phrase that kept coming to mind as I prepared this message was hopeful realism. That we would live with a sense of hopeful realism because the way life is That's not the whole story. Because of your, Jesus' death and resurrection, Lord, we live with hope. Because we know that grief and pain and death never get the last word with the gospel. And so we come and we celebrate the risen Lord the one who will one day make all things new. Lord, give us strength and courage as we wait. As we wait for that newness of life and help us, Lord, to trust in the God who has this whole world in his hands. It's in your precious and holy name we do pray this morning. Amen.